now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern-day Asian-American woman. My name is Helen. I'm Mel. And I'm Michelle. Hello, hello. So we often talk about the importance of representation, especially in the media. And today's guest is a trailblazer in her own right. Her name is Michelle Lee, and she advises beauty, lifestyle, and wellness brands on marketing and content strategy, brand identity and voice, product development, and multicultural audience strategy. You may recognize her name for her game-changing impact as editor-in-chief of Allure magazine, where she spearheaded initiatives like getting the publication to remove the term anti-aging from its own lexicon to challenge the conversation around aging. In 2017, Allure also featured Muslim model Halima Aden on the cover in a hijab, making Allure the first major women's magazine in the U.S. to do so. Michelle also oversaw Allure's website relaunch, hosted their podcast, and won them a slew of awards. She's got an impressive resume, but some notable points. Michelle ran the team at Nylon Media, worked at publications like Cosmo Girl, Paper Mag, and Glamour, and had bylines in Vogue, Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan, GQ, and more. Most recently, she served as VP, head of global editorial and publishing at Netflix, and is now running her own consultancy. Michelle's career in beauty and editorial reflects a true veteran, and a through line are her commitments to diversity and inclusion, the expansion of the definition of beauty, and inspiring nuanced cultural conversations. Hello, Michelle. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, everyone. Nice to be here. Yes. Okay, so before we jump into what you're doing, how you got to where you are today, why you are such an inspiration, we've got to ask you about your nail game. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Ooh, yes. She is showing us a very artsy looking pink, black, tan combo. Yes. <laughs> so first of all, this is my favorite question ever to start with. <laughs> Love it. Love um, it. Yes. I. It's funny because someone had asked me recently about like when I started getting into nails. And so I literally just went through this um, kind of like scanning my brain about like how long has it been really? It's honestly, I'm so into nails right now, but I've only really... It's only really been the past, I would say, seven years. Mm. Um, I actually used to work, I was the editor-in-chief and chief marketing officer at Nylon. And mm. right before I left there, I was on a shoot and we had some extra time and the nail artist who was doing nails for the shoot, Miss Pop, was like, hey, we have some time, do you want me to do your nails? And so she just kind of whipped up this like super amazing geomet- like geometric, um, I think it was like white and tan or something, it had a negative space. And I, for that whole week after, just kept staring at my nails being like, I love this so much. And so I committed after that point to just get super into it. And I understand my own limitations at this point. And so I do my nails, I would say 75% of the time now. Um, What I know that I can do though, is again, it's somewhat limited. Like I'm not a professional nail artist. Um, I have a much less coordinated left hand. So my right hand always looks a little bit mm, (laughs) questionable. but I love it. And so even to the point of where I don't really remember the last time I just had plain nail polish on. 
at the very least, I want to put at least one little dot or Mm -hmm. something to make it a little bit funky. And so my message with everyone has always been, even if you feel like you're not coordinated enough to paint your own nails, it takes a little bit of practice just to sort of do that base part of it, but have fun with it. And there are a lot of easy enough styles that people can do at home that, again, all you need is like a dotting tool and there's a lot of cool things. There's... um, ombre type of styles that you can do with a makeup sponge like that's kind of my mission is sharing with people that even if you're like me and you're not super super artistic with things and crafty you can still do something fun is it are you always doing gel or is it just regular nail polish no so listen i appreciate the people who do gel i am not a gel person myself i've had it maybe done twice and i didn't love it like i i love the look of it at first and i like that it, it lasts I don't love the removal process though. Mm, And so after having it done the second time, I was kind of like, you know what? I'm actually very good at taking care of my nails with regular polish. Like I'm super careful. I don't use my nails as tools to open up cans and stuff like that. Um, And I also, (laughs) I I make my manicures last longer because I'll top coat them again after three or four days. And so I can actually get regular nail polish to last like a week and a half sometimes. Oh, wow. So I've never really felt like I need to get gels. Um, there's also, I don't know if you've ever heard of this brand, um, it's called Manucurus, like M-A-N-U. And so they actually do, um, it's a whole process that you can do at home. It has like a, a little light thing, but it's actually LED light instead of UV. And the removal process is super fast. You have to use their special remover, but it literally takes like a minute versus going over and over and over with gels. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I feel like there are a lot of tips mm-hmm. that we just picked up here. Manicurist and also top coat after three days. Beautiful. Yep. Love those tips. And here's here's one more tip too. So I mentioned before um, when Miss Pop did my nails, she did that negative space. If you are like me and your nails grow really fast, mm-hmm. the hard part is you start to see the growth at the bottom. Mm-hmm. If you do negative space, like some cool negative space mm-hmm. design on the bottom, you actually don't have to worry about that all at all. So even after a week, it doesn't start to look a little crazy on the bottom because you see the growth. Yeah. Yep. 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 I, these are great tips. I'm actually going to get my nails done probably this week because I see like the growth coming in. I'm like, oh, this looks so gross. So we'll definitely note this. And I'm sure our listeners love doing nails. So thank you for sharing these tips with us. Um, it was such a hack. My pleasure. I could fill a whole hour just talking about nails. <laughs> we can do our nails one day. Let's uh, just throw the rest of our outline out. Let's just I know. talk about nails for <laughs> the rest of this. <laughs> nail, like, nail care and everything. But Michelle, we yeah. do want to learn more about you. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and like, you know, where did you grow up? And also like, when did you first experience being Asian in America? Yeah, such a good question. Um, so I grew up mostly in Connecticut. I grew up in a little town called Monroe, which is part of Fairfield County, if anyone's familiar with Connecticut. I had a very kind of middle-class suburban lifestyle. And I remember up to a certain age, not even realizing that I was Asian. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm a child of the 80s. And so back then you have to realize society was very different where we talk about race and ethnicity and other things so much more openly now. Back then, the town that I was in was super white town, like not diverse whatsoever. The only other Asian person in my school was my best friend at the time, who's who's Indian. And so my mom has a huge family. She's one of 10 kids. My dad also has a really big family. He's one of five. And so as you can imagine, like I think that's a lot of Asian families, especially mm-hmm. back then. I have a gazillion aunts and uncles, cousins and everything. And so it wasn't that I never saw other Asian people because I saw a lot of them at family get-togethers. But then when it came to school, I really didn't see anybody mm-hmm. at all who looked like me. 
And so again, up until a certain point, I would say I had a very happy childhood, like through kindergarten, first grade, like the super young elementary school ages. And then at a certain point, kind of like later in elementary school, that's when a lot of kids start to realize, oh, hey, we're different. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to like pick on you for your differences. And so especially in middle school, I went through a very, very hard time. I was ruthlessly bullied um, by these couple of kids. And the thing that really stuck with me was, again, up until that point, I don't think I realized that I was different. And so the fact that they were just pulling out these differences on me, and the worst part was there were adults who were around who didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, as I look back on this, I have really, at that point, I really internalized that something was wrong with me, where I felt this shame and I felt humiliated and embarrassed. I didn't feel like it was anything that they, like it's so warped to think about now, right? That I felt like it was more about me as opposed to them just being jerks. Um, I also at that time had teachers who, again, people were not as uh, sensitive, I guess, about certain things and they didn't know how to, to phrase things about race. I had teachers who would say really inappropriate, like horrible racist things. I, you know, again, trying to give people the benefit of the doubt, I think they just didn't know any better at Mm -hmm. the time. And so again, as I've looked back on how I grew up, it was really hard. And like, it it definitely had a huge impact on me on how I felt about Asian-ness, how I felt about myself. I grew up thinking I was the ugliest person in the world because I didn't know anyone who looked like me. I had people telling me every day I was the ugliest person. And so as I've grown up now, and especially once I started getting into beauty, I started to realize the impact that I could actually have that, Mm -hmm. you know, as a young person for me to grow up like that and one, not see myself anywhere reflected back, but also two, to think that somehow I was the ugliest person on the planet. um, I, at some point really felt like it was my mission and my responsibility, honestly, especially as a mom, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to try and make a change in the world. Oh man. It makes me like a little emotional and really sad that you had to go through that as a as a child because I I I can only imagine when you're so young and you're trying to form your confidence having someone tell you you're ugly or something that you're really not can really hurt you deeply and I wonder and I commend you on taking that pain and really wanting to champion you know how to like other women to feel beautiful in their own way because I I don't I can't even imagine that shift because like how do you how do you go from like rock bottom to like wanting to instill confidence in young girls yeah listen I I feel like I can say this now because I'm much older mm-hmm. right and in hindsight you can say oh these are all the things that led me to this mm-hmm. point I went through many years of not being able to deal with it like when I tell you in my 20s you know I already was like by a lot of different standards, I was pretty successful in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Like when I was 25, I became a senior editor at Glamour, right? Like this was my goal was I really wanted to work my way up in media, et cetera. And I was doing it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, I was a mess. Like I had massive social anxiety. I, this is, I don't think I've ever talked about this before. I had been called chink and ching chong so many times in my childhood. Whenever I even heard someone start a word that started with CH, I would literally have a physical reaction because I thought they were gonna call me a chink. Mm. And so this lasted up until, like I said, my 20s. I got into therapy when I was 25 because I had written a book, I wanted to do a book tour, and I was so terrified of going out Mm -hmm. and opening myself up and speaking to people that I was like, I physically cannot do this. I can't pull myself out of my shell to do it. And so my therapist, like I had a lot of 
tissues and like lots of crying and everything and I finally let go of that childhood trauma that again it's like crazy to think about that as an like a grown woman an Mm -hmm. adult at 25 that you're still holding on to these things that happen to you in childhood and so when I say yeah you know and then I discovered that I wanted to make this my mission it was so not an overnight thing that unfortunately there are a lot of people out there who are still dealing with that stuff. And like, you have to be able to, whether you have people in your life or hiring a therapist, you sometimes just have to be able to get it out and also work it out in your own head. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to hear that you were able to let go through do years of therapy work. You know, we know how tough that is to do that, like self-reflection and the crying and the puffy eyes afterwards. Um, as you were able to like let go of this childhood trauma and reflect back for and as you reflect back as Michelle's a child were there any moments that you remember that lit you up or any parallels to or any par- parallels that bring you joy as an adult now yeah i as a kid well first of all I'm Chinese, so I love food. <laughs> like, I feel like that is that has been one standard thing throughout my entire life. I feel like as a Chinese American, just as an Asian American, I think we're all very much obsessed with food. And so that absolutely is something where a lot of our family functions, it all revolved around food, it revolved around cooking mm-hmm. and other things. And so I still very much love that. I wish I had more time sometimes to cook myself, but I really enjoy eating. <laughs> um, but I also think one of the standards has been I've always really loved storytelling. And so as a a young person, again, who was going through a hard time, I felt like I could always immerse myself in stories, whether it was TV, movies, reading short stories or books, et cetera. And so especially in middle school, I feel like um, what really sparked me was when things got a little bit dark also, like you know, we were reading literature and, and, you know, serious English literature for a while. And then once we started reading Edgar Allan Poe, mm-hmm. science fiction, et cetera, it, that lit me up where I feel like there was a lot of social commentary, but it also, there was a little bit of a darkness in it. Mm-hmm. And I still think that to this day, I love stories. I love, um, entertainment, which then, you know, my role at Netflix that I had, like, I feel like it all kind of made sense with me. And especially moving into journalism and other things, like obviously in nonfiction journalism, you're dealing in reality, but it is still the art of storytelling. And mm-hmm. so it is something that from the time that I was a child to today, um, it's it's definitely been a constant. That's incredible. I love that. I love that. Going back to just the hard times that you were mentioning earlier, did you, were your parents ever aware of what you were going through? So I I hate to sound very uh, cliche and stereotypical because I think every Asian family is different, right? So keep that in mind. But I do think that there's this thread in some many Asian families where you don't talk about stuff, Mm -hmm. right? And so whether it was something that was conscious for my parents, my my parents never said to me, hey, don't talk to, to us about stuff, right? Like, obviously, they would never verbalize that. For whatever reason, I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody back mm-hmm. then. And so when these horrible things were happening to me, I kind of just clammed up and kept it to myself. There was a moment at some point where um, there was this one incident like on a school bus where things really went bad. And so the school got involved at that point. And again, this was one of the, the moments when trust was broken because ultimately nothing happened. And so then my parents did actually know about that. And so they called... Um, So one of the kids who was bullying me was actually a neighbor. They called his parents and they said, hey, can you come over because we want to talk? And so I remember, you know, feeling really nervous and knock at the door. 
and the parents are there and they didn't come in. They just stood at the doorway and had this conversation. And all I could hear was them saying, well, that doesn't sound like our son, that that can't be right, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so again, like as a kid, you don't really know everything that's going on. But what I internalized was even when my parents tried to help, like they really were trying to help, still nothing happened. And these people were just denying, denying, like they believe their own kid. And so again, whether it was right or not, um, I just internalized, even if I say something to somebody else, nothing's gonna happen. So why should I say anything? So unfortunately, still to this day, I don't think that my parents know the true depth of everything that happened because they probably only know little bits and pieces. I have a sister who's four years older than me and I do remember asking her, you know, she grew up in the same town and at some point, probably in my twenties when I was going to therapy, I think I asked her, um, did you experience the same thing when you were growing up? And she didn't. Mm -hmm. And so my husband is Filipino. He grew up in the suburbs in New Jersey and he never went through anything like that. And so again, like even as an adult, I was kind of like, boy, is this just a completely isolated incident for me? Where is it just about me? Um, and so, uh, you know, you do you do your soul searching and you, you figure stuff out. I now realize I have a much larger Asian American community. And obviously, this is not an isolated incident. And everyone deals with their own their own traumas and their own things. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, with your parents now, like thinking back, uh, were they immigrant parents? So my dad was born in China and he came over when he was in middle school. My mom is also Chinese, but she was born here. Um, her older siblings were born in China, but every her family had come over before she was born. Got it, got it. I would love to hear what are some core lessons that they taught you while you were growing up in, in Connecticut. What were some lessons, even now as a mom, that you think about the lessons that they taught you, what were some lessons that you're also thinking about um, passing down to your to your little girl? Yeah. Yeah, well, so I, so I have I have three kids actually. So uh, I have a huge age gap. My son Ethan actually graduates from high school this year, so he's seventeen, <gasps> oh almost very close to being eighteen right now. Uh, my middle daughter Gabby is fourteen, and then we have our little one who's three. Oh so she's God. our our pandemic baby. Ooh, but okay, <laughs> yeah. So we super um, mom over here. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. My parents were the best, the best. I feel terrible because I think that as a high schooler, especially, I was very hard on them, especially my mom. Mm -hmm. I tend to think that when you're an unhappy kid for other reasons, you tend to take it out on the people who are close to you and it's your family because you realize they're not going to leave you. So you can kind of like, you know, treat them like dirt and, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Not a conscious thing, but I think that's probably what happened. Um, my parents were fantastic, super, super hardworking. When I think about my parents, I always think about they hardly ever sit down. <laughs> like they constantly are doing something. They're they're cleaning up, they're in the kitchen, they're chopping vegetables, they're doing things. My dad was um, a VP at a software company for a long time. He also worked in reinsurance. Um, It was kind of like the classic family back in the 80s where the dad goes off to work, the mom stays home with the kids. My mom was fantastic. She always took us to the library to read and uh, other things. When I got to middle school, um, you know, again, my sister was older. So my mom was like, hey, I'm going to get a job. So my mom started working part time. 
And what I learned from both of them very much was about perseverance Mm -hmm. and hard work. Um, I think with my dad, especially, he would always kind of have more conversations with us about his life at work and other things about, you know, you got to put your head down and work and you're going to be rewarded. And he was he was very open with my sister and me about because you're Asian and because you're women, you're going to have to work twice as hard. And to be honest, it's pretty good advice because I definitely, once I got into the work world, I saw that to be true. Um, When I got into college, my mom got a full-time job. And so my mom, you have to understand personality-wise, my mom is very reserved. She is very shy, not somebody who you would imagine going into something like sales. My mom got a job in sales. (laughs) That was such a formative moment for me because I saw her and I saw how she worked to go and like speak in front of other people, to go and like be a go-getter in like this really, you know, outward Mm -hmm. way. And in my mind, I just felt like watching her do this, I was like, I can, if she can do, I can do anything too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I mentioned before, when I was 25, I had this major phobia of public speaking. And she was such a catalyst for me because when I saw her doing that, that she can speak to a whole room of people and be fine, I was like, okay, I really need to work on myself so I can be able to do that too. And so when I think about the lessons that my parents taught me, so much of them have been super formative for me in in where I am today. Um, I would say though, the one thing, you know, as I mentioned before, like the the put your head down and work, um, you know, whole philosophy. Now I've talked to a lot of other Asian Americans and a lot of us kind of grew up with that, right? I think I have in my own way, twisted that a little bit because I do think that hard work is super, super important. And, and even looking at young people who, who, let's say, have worked under me, people can tell when you're a hard worker, right? And, and it is value to a certain extent. The piece that's missing in that, though, is that you also have to be kind of loud about mm. what you're doing and what your accomplishments are. And so, again, not to generalize everyone because everyone is different, but I would say that there is this thread among the Asian American community that we have been told, put your head down, don't brag about yourself, et cetera. When actually the reality is it's not bragging. It's that if you don't tell people what is it, what it is that you're doing and what your value is, people are not mind readers. Everyone's super busy and they're not going to necessarily notice everything. And mm-hmm. so it is something that more recently, I would say in the past like five or 10 years in my career, I definitely have started to realize that everybody needs to foster that side of things as well, that you you do have to be quite loud sometimes to, to make sure that people understand what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's beautifully said. I completely agree. It's not selfish. It's celebrating your wins and being proud of them. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that you said earlier that I just wanted to ask a quick question on is that when you're 25, one of your biggest fears was public speaking. But your mom was sort of your huge inspiration to sort of get out of that shell. What did you do um, work-wise, internally-wise, to sort of get yourself to not be so fearful of yeah. what you have to say? Oh, man, it was rough. I when I was in college, I had this very traumatic experience where I was in a small class, I would say it was maybe let's say 1520 people. Something happened where I went up to the podium to present something. And the professor was like, Oh, hey, I have to go make a phone call like right before I went up, I have to go make a phone call. I'll be back in 15 minutes. When I get back, tell me how she did, right? Hmm. So I get up to the podium, the top wooden piece of the podium fell. 
And I had this shock that just shot through my entire body where I could feel like my scalp was like on fire Mm -hmm. and I froze and it wasn't even a huge group of people, but I literally just stood there and I could not present. And so after maybe standing there for a minute, I just got my stuff and went and I sat back down and the whole room just sat there uncomfortably for 10 minutes until the professor came back. Professor walks in and he's like, how'd she do? And some very, very nice guy in the room goes, she did great. But, (laughs) you know, for whatever reason, that was something that stuck with me for such a long time that I I felt like I, if I get up in front of people, I'm going to have this embarrassing thing happen to me. And so it was this time again, when I was 25, where I was like, I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to like work through some of this stuff and realize actually how ridiculous it is that like, that's not going to happen to you. And also it's not like you're in mortal danger, mortal danger, if even if that does happen. So a lot of it was understanding the things that were causing me fear, that they're not going to hurt me, that there's something that you can totally work through. Like that's, that's one of the biggest things and then practice. So I, like I said, I did a, I wrote a book, I did a small book tour. I got in front of, um, rooms of people who were strangers. And I remember having the microphone in hand and just being like, I'm just going to have fun with this. And there was a moment in time where I just leaned into it and I could feel my entire body relax. And then I was like, wait, this is kind of fun. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't overnight, but it just took a lot of practice to this point, to the point of where now I have spoken to rooms of people of 500 people. And I'm really not nervous about it. Like I make sure that I prepare. So I, you know, I'm not stuck without having answers for things. Um, weirdly though, I could, I, I feel very confident now that I could speak to a room of like a stadium, 10,000 people, 20,000 more and not be super nervous. But sometimes I am still nervous speaking to a group of five people who I do know. And so, you know, even at my, I've been doing this for a while, but there are still in everybody, you have to realize everyone has their own anxieties and their fears and whether they're rational or not, everyone is kind of working on their own things. I really appreciate that answer because I also have a fear of public speaking. But with ABG, we also go around speaking. We've done like over 50 speaking engagements and I still get nervous. But you're you're right. Like the, the moment when you say, let's just have fun with this mm-hmm. is when I really do have fun with it. We are our own um, worst critics and yep. we set ourselves back the most. No one else cares <laughs> what is going through your head. But um, just stepping out and having fun and being yourself and telling your story authentically, I think that's uh, I love that advice that, that yeah. you shared. So thank you for it's, that. It's so true. And for a while, I kind of went in this direction of saying, if I over-prepare mm-hmm. and I memorize everything and be like robotic, that that will save me. Because at least I can go into autopilot if I forget something and I've memorized it so well. Da, 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 da. It's actually not a great tactic to take because you do end up sounding like a robot. And also, you're just not in the moment at all. And mm-hmm. people can kind of feel that. And so someone at some point had said to me that if you're nervous, like I was so, so fearful of someone seeing my hands shaking, right? Or my voice kind of crack a little bit. And someone said, everyone gets nervous with public speaking. And so even if you just acknowledge sometimes like, I'm sorry, everyone, I'm a little bit nervous. It's human and it's real and people are okay. Because frankly, almost everybody in that audience probably also feels very nervous talking to a group.
I don't know about you, but it feels like a lot of my friends are now getting on that baby train. If you have a friend who is also expecting or have little ones still in diapers, I always recommend Pampers Swaddlers. With Pampers Swaddlers, you can also rest assured that this diaper will prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Swaddlers has dual leak guard barriers at the legs to help protect where leaks happen most. And they have a blowout barrier, which is an innovative back pocket built into the diaper to help prevent those messy leaks up the back. Did you know that on average, babies will use up to 8,000 plus diapers before becoming potty trained? That is a lot. That's why Pampers Diaper Stash is the hottest baby gift for 2024. So give a gift to a loved one that says, we see you and we've got you. Pampers Diaper Stash is an online diaper fund that all parents with little ones will love. You can organize friends and family to contribute to a group gift of an online stockpile that never has to run out. Pampers Diaper Stash is great because it takes the guesswork out of choosing what size and how many diapers to gift. It's so easy to do and it's the gift that always fits. Michelle, I, I love your tips and advice. I feel like I listen to you forever. Um, you mentioned, I, I feel like you also have really good insight of, you know, when you're talking about like how you notice a lot of Asian Americans have this mentality to like put your heads down and work and you noticed um, it's that but also noting to celebrate our wins but it sounds like you went through a lot of you had a lot of experience working um, in terms of your career what are some challenges you face at work as an Asian woman of color yeah um, it's something that was not always visible to myself I guess until more recently where people have started to open up about microaggressions and other things, where then it led me to think about my career a little bit more and be like, oh, wait, that happened to me. And I didn't realize at the time that actually that was really wrong. Um, a lot of the things that people have talked about, like especially other Asian women, have absolutely happened to me. I have, throughout my entire career, if there were another Asian woman in the office, I have often been mistaken for that person, mm. called by their name, I've been talked over. I mean, that's not just an Asian thing. That's a woman thing, I think, where people will talk over you in meetings. Um, weirdly, I was thinking about this. I, I've been called Kim a lot. And so when I when I think about that, I, th I was like, wait, is that kind of racist? Because Kim is like a common Korean last name. So then people somehow look at me and they go, oh, Kim. <laughs> um, it's been stuff like that where you know, the, the hard part about subtle racism in the workplace, right, is that there are certain things that will happen that you'll never really know if it was racist or not. And that's the thing that ends up kind of messing with your head sometimes is that throughout my career, especially um, as I've become more senior, I certainly have had people who have felt entitled to try and walk all over me or be backstabbers or other things. Is that racially motivated? Is that because I'm a woman? Is that, you know, like you don't ever know unless someone is very overt about it, which in most cases they're not. And so that is, again, like as you think about certain things that have been negative that happened to you in the workplace, et cetera, it does kind of, I don't know, for me at least, it's, it's sort of messed with me a little bit. Um, like I said before, I have never been good at, bragging is the wrong word, but like I've never been good at heralding my own accomplishments. And I, it's still to this day, it's something that I struggle with. Um, I think that for a while, sort of in my mid-career, because I was like, okay, I'm going to be better, better at bragging about myself. I kind of went the other way and I was like, I'm just too braggy. And then I'm forgetting to actually thank the people like, the, you know, behind any successful person, there's a whole team of other people who are doing things. 
And so I guess my advice is also, as I'm, I'm saying to like other Asian American people, like be good about bragging about yourself. Don't do it to the point of where you forget about everybody else that has obviously worked on a project, right? Like we have to make sure that we're pulling everybody else up with us. And so in my effort, sometimes I think to, um, make sure that I'm, I'm shining a spotlight on myself. I don't think I was the best at making sure that it was also shining a spotlight on others. Mm-hmm. And that takes time, right? Like we're all kind of trying to work through things of, of how to do stuff. And so it is a point that I, I constantly am like making sure that I remember now. Mm-hmm. 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 I do like the point that you um, brought up earlier about how sometimes we face subtle racism in the workplace as Asian American women. I think all a lot of people listening right now can completely agree. And I mean, those are microaggressions that come up. And a lot of times we don't know that it's happening in the moment. And it's not until later on that we reflect back on our careers. And we're like, oh, my gosh, that is all, those are all microaggressions. And when you add all of those up together, it really sets you yourself back in your own confidence and um, even with this podcast like I was working in finance for 10 years and I felt all of that not did not speak up many times because I always thought it was me and I internalized it and I didn't have a group of people to really share that experience with and it's not until now that we have this platform that we're like let's call this out (laughs) so that other people can feel it understand it know what they're going through and call it out themselves you know so I'm, I'm very happy that you not happy that you went through that, but glad that you brought that up um, as a challenge that even for you as someone who is very accomplished, like you face that as well. Mm-hmm. Who is someone who's had a positive impact on your career? Perhaps a mentor, any wise words that have stuck with you that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, um, so so many people. I Like you said, especially in the beginning of my career, I was very much a job hopper. Like I think that someone very early on had said that to to keep moving up in media, you have to keep moving on. And I I took it a little bit too seriously. Um, My very first boss, though, in journalism, I was living down in Florida and I was an intern at this weekly newspaper called The Weekly Planet. Uh, It was sort of like an alt weekly newspaper, like super liberal, like funky. Uh, We used to do like concert reviews and like, you know, club reviews and stuff like that, but also like interesting local stories. At the time, this was pre like internet time, like taking over everything. We were still using fax machines and stuff. And so my job as an intern, while I was in, I was interning while I was in college, my job was the movie listings. So imagine you don't have the internet and how you found movie listings was like times and stuff was in the newspaper. <laughs> so I had to get the faxes from all the movie, the local movie theaters in and I would type them to like write into the newspaper. And so I had taken a chance and written a couple stories, like was not being paid to do that, but I was like, hey, I just want to write a couple stories. And the editor-in-chief at the time, Susan, um, took a chance on me. And she was, you know, the couple of stories I wrote, she was like, these are really good. And she she ended up hiring me as a full-time staff writer. So I moved all of my college classes to the night and I worked full-time during the day. And she was the first person in my career who really took a chance and believed in me. And to this day, I'm still really good friends with her. I I still very much consider her to be a mentor. Um, What was great about her was she was an excellent editor who had a lot of opinions, but also allowed a lot of freedom. And so we would talk about things. I remember there's this one story that I wrote. And so we had a little meeting with the whole editorial staff about there was like one phrase in it where I was like a little bit too sassy, I think, for like a newspaper. And so we just discussed, like, is this something that's like appropriate for our voice for the Weekly Planet? And so, again, it wasn't like 
you shouldn't do that or anything. It was very much, let's talk about this as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so she probably out of everybody in my entire career has had the most impact on me because it just helped to feed my confidence that as a young person who's still a college student to be then, you know, a full-time writer and something that, that was the point that really made my career initially take off. I also more recently when I was at Allure, um, Anna Wintour was my boss and, you know, a lot has been said about Anna. She's such a obviously powerful woman in fashion. Um, to me, she is such a wonderful mentor because I think that for what people think about her, they think that somehow, you know, she tells people what to do, et cetera. She is one of the most editor friendly people mm. in that she has your back. And so what I love about her and working under her has been she's very opinionated about certain things, right? She'll tell you how she feels about an image. And if, even if she doesn't like something, ultimately it always comes down to, but it's your decision. And so I feel like whether it's, uh, you know, how I work with future uh, managers, bosses, or whether it's how I work with people who are under me, that's had a really big impact that I think that you can be strong enough to give your very definitive opinions on things, but ultimately you also have to make sure that you empower people and that if you're working with people under you, they're there for a reason and you have to trust their instincts and also trust them. And so that that was super impactful also. I think beyond bosses and, and other people too, I think what's served me really well has been to have groups of friends along the way who will be honest with you. So for example, last week I just had virtual coffee with somebody who I know who I used to be on the board of Colorcom with her. And she's such a, to me, super accomplished person who I trust her, her opinions on everything. And she's also really honest with me about, here's what I think you need to do. And so a lot of times, especially once you get to a certain level, you have a lot of people who are like, yes, people and whatever, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. you can kind of get stuck in your, your own way because no one's telling you the truth. And so my advice to everybody is make sure that whether they're your personal friends, whether they're your work buddies, whether they're just people you've met along the way, make sure that you're surrounding yourself with people who will check you <laughs> and make sure that you're not just having yes people. Cause we've seen too many folks out there who are clearly only surrounded by yes people. And it always leads you in a bad direction. I love that advice. I think it's really, uh, really, especially the last one. I think sometimes, like, uh, the first thing for me, I, I'm like a people pleaser and I also hate like confrontation, but I do respect my friends who are like, yeah, Mel, that wasn't a great decision or that wasn't the best because I think that's also your your own way to evolve as you grow older um, to have people call you out sometimes. So I love that piece of advice and everything yeah. else you shared. Um, oh, Mel, I, I hear you on the people pleaser thing. Again, I don't know if it's like an Asian mm -hmm. American woman thing, but I definitely have known a lot of Asian American women who we all have kind of connected on that one point. Um, through my career, I still struggle with this very mm -hmm. much too, because I am exactly the same way. I'm a people pleaser. I don't like confrontation whatsoever. But as a as a leader and as a manager, you start to realize that if you are too nice and like just trying to please everyone you are going to please no one mm. because you have to understand like, you know, you have to have a strong opinion about what the right direction is and people will respect you for that. You're never going to please everybody. And it is definitely, it's something that I've struggled with for, for a really long time, but it's, it's necessary. And it is what people want. They want to have you as their leader, tell them, I believe that this is the right direction, even if you're going to piss off half the people. Mm. 
Ooh, okay, I'm going to totally note that and remember that after this podcast. Uh, Michelle, something really interesting about you that I also find really inspiring is that, like you mentioned, you did hop around a lot of jobs. But not only that, but you actually hopped to different industries. And I know talking to a lot of friends and our listeners, like, you know, you might start out in like tech or something, but want to be in entertainment. And for you, as someone who successfully navigated different industries, do you have any advice for our listeners who want to expand their careers into a new terrain? Yeah, Um I definitely have talked with a lot of young people about this because for me, a lot of the moving through various industries was very intentional. Um, I think that for me, looking at the past 20 years of media, let's say, it's changed dramatically from the time that I first started. When I first moved to New York City, I was an intern at Glamour Magazine. And at the time, the editor-in-chief, Ruth Whitney, her sole job was the magazine, right? Think about now, being an editor-in-chief at Allure, Yes, you had the magazine, but you also had the website, you had video, social media, we had the Allure uh, Beauty Box, which is sort of like a subscription box business, we had licensing, we had events, we had so many other things. You basically, as an editor-in-chief, are a general manager, you're a CEO, you're a CMO. And so as I started to look at the landscape of media, I realized, okay, how do I position myself into some of these other things? I also... It is part of my personality that if I don't know how to do something, I then become obsessed <laughs> with trying to learn how to do it. Um, so when I was at Nylon, uh, before I was at Allure, I remember thinking, I really want to get more involved on the business side. And so I had approached my CEO at the time, and we had a great relationship where he, during one of our one-on-ones, had said to me, where, where do you see yourself? Like, where do you want to go after this here? Like, how can we help you grow? And I was just very honest with him. And I said, I really want to get more involved on the business side. And so he was like, okay, great. I'm going to help you with that. And so he invited me to a lot more of like the business and finance meetings and sales and other things. And we decided to launch something called Nylon Studio together, where it was all about brand marketing. We would like white, white label uh, projects for other advertisers and things. And so eventually I was promoted to um, head of brand strategy and then I became the chief marketing officer as well as being the editor in chief. And so that helped position me towards marketing. And I thought, boy, this is kind of what I'm doing already anyway, because as an editor in chief, you are the brand steward. You are really, you know, figuring out how to find the audience and other things. And then at some point while I was at Allure, I was like, boy, tech is really exciting. <laughs> I feel like I want to get more involved in the tech world. And so at that point, you know, I had had enough, I feel like I had enough kind of gravitas and, you know, enough experience and other things to be able to reach out to people. And so even if you're just a begin, you know, a beginning person, really make sure that you're utilizing your entire network mm -hmm. and look at, I, I always think it's really good for people to look at LinkedIn, um, look at people who have the job or like the life that you want next or the next two steps or next two, three steps and figure out what they're doing. Like, what is it if, if let's say I'm like, you know, I really want to be a CEO one day, then I should look at some of the CEOs who I really admire and look at the path that they took. Not that your path has to follow exactly that, but it can help to provide just like a little bit of a blueprint of how they got to where they are today. Obviously, everybody has their own journeys. We all have our own pathway, especially today. Like I feel like, um, some of the jobs that exist today just didn't even exist mm -hmm. <laughs> when I was growing up. 
Um, but I'm also a really big proponent always of what I call being an entrepreneur. I did not create this word. It's something that a lot of people talk about, but it's something that has really served me well has been, you know, startup culture is very, very popular. And I, I feel this drive towards, you know, oh, should I start my own thing also? A lot of times it doesn't work out for people though, because it's a lot of risk. And so you don't have steady health insurance when you start your own thing. You don't have a steady paycheck. You, you're not sure if it's going to win or lose, you know, fail or succeed. And so being an entrepreneur means while you were in the comfort of your full-time job, is there a project or another thing that you can do within your own company that you're helping yourself learn something new and be able to put something new on your resume, but you're also helping your company as well. And so obviously the core part of that is you have to be crushing it in your actual day job. But then if you have a great manager who says, you know, what's your next move? Like, what do you want to do? You might say, okay, great. Well, there's this, um, this other project that this person is working on, I would love to be able to spend some time helping them on that. And so, you know, again, it's, it's kind of what I did at, at Nylon where I said, okay, I've got my core editor in chief job right now, but what I really want to learn is this other thing. And so, um, I've started now to look at roles as almost like a graduate degree that if you think about people will spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousand dollars on graduate degrees. But actually, if you can learn all of those things within a company, that's so much better. And so I, I counsel a lot of young people also to think about people are so obsessed with the salary, right? That it's like, oh, well, I have to negotiate this $5,000 here or there. But when you're thinking about what the ideal role is, think about it in terms of what can I learn and how can it help me get to that next step also, rather than, you know, obviously the money is important. You need to make sure that you're compensated properly, but sometimes the best role for your career isn't always going to be the short-term money. It might actually be the connections that you make, what you learn in that role, and to start thinking about things in that sense. That's Beautiful advice there. I feel like um, one of the things you said, the underlying message was like, also find a good mentor. Find a good mentor that will champion where you want to go. And sometimes when you're stuck in just work mode, you don't even think about what your next step is. You're just like, I'm just going to continue progressing up this career ladder. And eventually I'll get somewhere good, right? Somewhere where my boss is. But I think it's important for someone to challenge you to say, what do you want to do potentially outside of here? What can we help? What can we do internally to help you achieve that goal? That is the, the best support I think any job can really give someone. And that's, that's also a message to any managers out there too, to support your employee and make them feel like they're seen and they're heard and they're valued by asking them, what else is it? What, how else can I support you other than in your current role, in your current job of where you were working today? So thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's beautiful um, advice. So focusing a bit more on your current work, we understand you started your own consultancy. Congratulations. That is Thank huge. You. Thank huge, you. Huge, huge, Yes. Can you share with us a little bit more about that? What are you working on right now? What is your dream project or client with this, this new role that you've taken on? Yep. Um, yes, super, super excited. So after so many years at Allure, and then I left there and I went to Netflix to be one of the global marketing leads over there. 
I really missed, honestly, working on creative things. I missed working with consumer brands. I missed beauty. (laughs) And so I started my own consultancy and I'm working with um, some amazing clients. I'm working with Ulta Beauty, Revive Skincare, um, this uh, skincare brand called Muesli, uh, lots of very exciting things. Um, I think for me, what has, has become super, super important has been making a difference. Especially when I was at Allure, I think I realized the value of, you can work at a brand, but also make a big cultural change. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things that I did at Allure, right? People, when I first started, kind of thought of Allure as like, oh, it's beauty. You're gonna talk about lipstick and mascara and eyeliner and things. And certainly we did talk about those things. But I also looked at it as, okay, wait, we're this big consumer media brand where the things that we do related to beauty actually can make an impact on society. Mm-hmm. And so I've carried that over with me in a lot of different ways that when you're promoting Netflix content, there's a lot of things that actually talk about society and culture and other things. And how can you actually make that impact? I was chatting with uh, Deborah Yeah, who was the chief marketing officer uh, at Sephora for many years. And so she just moved her whole family to Paris recently to become the global chief purpose officer there. And I was like, wow, that is such a dream role because what she's doing is like all about diversity and inclusion. It's about, um, you know, sustainability and other things. And so to think about a brand like Sephora where, you know, it's a, it's a big beauty retailer, the fact that they can also have this huge impact on culture and other things is, is fantastic. Um, the brands that I'm working with, you know, Ulta Beauty also has made such huge, huge impact when it comes to this is the face of beauty and like, this is what beauty looks like. And so, you know, for me, I feel like the world is kind of my oyster, right? In terms of who I could work with. I feel like I reached out to first brands who I really love and I really love what they stand for. And so to me, um, I feel like what I do and what I continue to do in the future, I feel like has to have some meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm probably just at this point in my career where it's not just making a buck, right? Like I want to, I feel like I now want to make sure that I'm one, enjoying myself during the days. Like I, I really love what I'm working on. I feel very creatively fulfilled, but also that I believe in what the brands that I'm working with really stand for. Mm. I love that. I feel like you're very, such a purposeful, strong, independent woman. And I think that's great that you started your own, your old, your own agency to kind of invest more in yourself and to really go for what you're passionate about. And I do want to talk about how you really are redefining beauty. You know, your time at Allure, you did some groundbreaking things. Like, can you tell us a little bit more about the decision to remove anti-aging from Allure's lexicon? Like, why was that so important to you? And have you noticed any cultural shifts since then? Yeah, I have often said if there's one thing that I'm remembered for at Allure, it is that. Um, Like I was saying before, though, where no decision is made in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. Like this very much was an all team effort. At the time, our digital director, um, Phil Picardi, he was, I think, one of our youngest members of staff. He had brought it up in like a memo of like, why are we still saying anti-aging? And so simultaneously, I was in a meeting maybe like a week or so later, and our beauty director, Jenny Bailly, also kind of had the same thought of like, yeah, this is like a very antiquated thing. 
in conversation, none of us were saying it. Like we weren't saying to our friends, hey, what anti-aging cream are you using? And so as we started to dig into just the, the genesis of this term, but also the deep cultural meaning, like how it could really be internalized as such a negative thing, we were like, okay, there's definitely something here. There was a little bit of fear though going into it because at the time we actually on our website we had a section called anti-aging <laughs> and so as you know like every almost every single skincare company out there used it on their packaging they mm. used it on their websites they used it in all of their marketing materials and so we did feel like okay if we do this there could potentially be some backlash and some of these companies could be very very angry with us at the same time we felt like we had done a lot of work in diversity and inclusion in a lot of different ways uh, through race, race, ethnicity, skin color, other things. And so this was kind of this blind spot within mm-hmm. the beauty industry that still it was like kind of taboo <clears throat> to talk about aging. And so we did it. We had an issue where we had Helen Mirren on the cover. I actually wrote that cover story. And in my editor's letter, we declared we are not going to use the term anti-aging anymore. And here's why. And so as we sort of laid out you know, to say anti-aging is sort of like, we use it sometimes with like anti-fungal and like other things that we want to kill, right? Like if you're saying anti-something, it's because you hate it. And so, you know, we shouldn't hate aging. Aging is a wonderful thing. If you're aging, it means that you're progressing. And even thinking about Asian cultures, right? It's like aging is much more revered in Asian cultures than it is in others. And so once this came out, it had global appeal like it just went bonkers everybody was talking about it in the uk somebody uh introduced a referendum to kill the term anti-aging in the entire country because of what we did it didn't end up passing but i thought it was very cool the fact that it sparked this global conversation about Mm. aging there were some people i would say a very small percentage of people who were critical of it and who said it's just semantics you know what does it matter blah 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 But I now look back on it, and I I think we were a small piece of this, right? And I I don't want to take credit for everything. But when I think now about the past, you know, few years, there are so many more older models in ads, on runways. There's now lots of products for um, uh, women who are, are experiencing menopause. And so I do feel like we were a part of that conversation shifting where then people just became more aware of their own blind spots and how they were negatively talking about aging and negatively thinking about aging. And so I I do feel like that one moment in time, right, it's not even that big of a thing. Like uh, a media brand says, hey, we're not going to use anti-aging anymore. But the fact that it did have this global effect of sparking conversation was was such a valuable thing. Mm. I mean, words matter, you know, that just that just shows how much words do matter and what you say out there, it, it can have a really, really big impact just to have just to remove just those anti age just to remove that and have it be such a global phenomenon is incredible and that you were a part of that. It's so, so cool. And I feel like the older that we are getting also, you know, we are appreciative of brands that are making that effort to really love yourself no matter what age, no matter what skin you're in. So that's so cool that you were a part of that. Thank you. Um, you did mention that you have three kids now, which is also incredible, ranging from three to high school. How are you navigating conversations with them um, about beauty and confidence, and especially because they're at such different ages? You know, how are you having those conversations with them? 
Yeah, I have always made it a point of telling our kids, especially when our older two were were much younger, both of them independently, like in different years, had come home at some point saying some kid had called them weird, right? And so I've always instilled in them that weird is amazing. It means that you're different and like we should lean into that and other things. And I think because of the way that I grew up, I am a real mama bear about stuff like that. I tend to think that, you know, if you, if you talk to most people who've worked with me or who just know me in my personal life, I'm pretty chill. Like, I, I'm not like super, super outwardly type A, but there is one thing <laughs> that gets that mama bear coming. And it is, I do not stand for bullies and I do not stand for any racism or like people being picked on. And so when it comes to my own kids, like especially with my my middle daughter, um, she, when she was in middle school, kind of went through this period of time where, you know, everyone's on social media and like all like the girls are seeing tons of makeup and everything. And so at a super young age, I remember she and her friends were constantly seeing videos of people doing contouring mm-hmm. and stuff. And she was like, oh, I don't know how to do this. But I, I just have sort of instilled in, in all of them, like if you want to do that because it's fun absolutely you should go and do it, but also realize that you don't need to do it, right? And I think that's the really important thing for everyone to understand about beauty and beauty standards is that if you enjoy skincare and you wanna do it for yourself, absolutely go and do it. But the minute that someone else tells you you're an ugly hag if you don't do this, like that's that's a terrible thing. And so I think it's like figuring out that distinction, especially with young people, that it's like, if you want to do this because you truly enjoy it and you just love it so much, absolutely do it. And so what's been great about seeing my daughter, my middle daughter, is that, you know, she will maybe get into beauty at some point when she gets older. She has no interest in it whatsoever. Like I've got a lot of stuff in my office still where I'm like, oh, do you want this? And she's like, no, thank you. And I think that's great. Like I feel like, um, you know, even having a mother who like works in beauty, <laughs> the fact that she's not super into it, I think is it's amazing. Yeah. And I love how you're not also pushing that onto them because I could see how someone who is working in beauty could be like, this is what you would do to maximize on the standardized, you know, version of beauty for your face. And I can help you with that. (laughs) Instead, you're saying, here's a choice and do it if you like it and I'll help you if you like it. But if you don't, don't do it. And I think that's so empowering because you're offering that conversation and that sort of thought process for them as they're approaching makeup and looking at it and Mm -hmm. thinking about it. Yeah. And meanwhile, the three-year-old does love to get her hands on my makeup brushes and face rollers and stuff. And she's like, (laughs) she's going to be trouble. She's going to be trouble. (laughs) Well, speaking about your kids, I would love to go into the topic of motherhood. I mean, you have so many things going on, so many things on your plate right now. How have things changed since your youngest came into the picture? Yeah. So... Like I said, we've got a a big age gap. And so because we had our son, we had our daughter, there were many years where my husband and I were like, we're done. Like, Mm -hmm. we're happy. We've got our healthy kids. Like, we're kind of done. At some point, though, I think especially when my, my middle daughter got a little bit older and she became, like, very independent, I had this like almost like biological, like, oh, my God, am I never going to have a little kid again? And so I became kind of obsessed with this idea of having another one. Um, I, by that point, I think at the time I I started even thinking about it, I was already 44. And so, you know, I was like, oh, this is going to get a little tricky. We kind of tried and tried and then nothing. And so I ended up doing, we ended up doing IVF. Um, By that point, 
the doctors were calling me a geriatric pregnancy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, but um, they showed me a bunch of charts of like, you know, here are the chances, even with IVF that you're going to get pregnant. It was super low, like about zero, basically. And so we had one chance and it was her and like, you know, wonderful, amazing, amazing. She was born um, th- three or four weeks before the pandemic shut everything wow. down. And so I remember, uh, you know, we got to the hospital at that point, it was sort of like there were a little, you know, some chatter about COVID and other things. But then about three or four weeks later, I remember reading the news that like, there's no partners allowed in the delivery room anymore. And I was like, whoa, she came (laughs) right at the right time. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been wonderful having her here. I will say though, so my husband's cousin ended up moving in with us to help with the baby. That has been an absolute godsend. For all the parents, especially during the pandemic when everything was like all virtual, who were juggling child childcare duties plus work and other things, I don't know how anybody did it. Like I said, like it, it it's like cliche, but it does take a village. Um, mm-hmm. What's also been really helpful is that because my two older kids are super self-sufficient, they almost have been like an additional set of parents too. Mm-hmm. That like we feel like we're the grandparents and they're the parents, and you know this kid has so so much love around her. It's been wonderful, um, and especially I would say like during when everything was kind of locked down, I feel like having the little one around has been. It's kept us young and it's mm-hmm. kept everybody really happy. You know, like when you have a little funny kid around, it's just like you're laughing constantly. And so it's it's really been wonderful. And I think especially at this point in my career, I as I look at what's important in my life, and maybe it's an Asian American thing too, like we're all typically pretty family oriented. And so when I look at my parents, my grandparents, at the end of the day, the thing that's the most important is your loved ones. And so mm-hmm. as much as I appreciate my success and I am definitely ambitious and other things, the thing that matters to me the most is really my kids and, and my family. Aww. I'm pretty sure Helen can relate to that, having a little young one in the house smiling. And it just brings this like, they're just so pure. It brings this like kind of like, I can't describe this joy when you see your little one. I can only relate because I see Helen's baby and it makes me so happy. So I can only imagine having your own little one running around the house, how exciting (laughs) and like a little stress relief it can be during the day, even though it can be stressful at times. Um, Michelle, I also feel like you're such a strong career woman. And I, I know one thing I've learned talking to Helen, other to my other friends that are becoming moms is that they lose a sense of identity, you know, when they become a mom, because they're, they're adding a new identity, they're shedding some other ones. What advice would you give to other women who are nervous about getting pregnant and how that might impact their work lives? Yeah, I have definitely had a lot of conversations with younger women about when to become a mom, how to do it, how to balance everything. And similar to what I was talking about in the beginning about like, you know, nothing is an overnight like, oh, and then I figured it out and everything's amazing, right? It's all a little bit of a struggle. To me though, there's no quote unquote perfect time Mm. to get pregnant, to become a mom, right? Like a lot of times I feel like, you know, nowadays people sort of wait because they're like, well, I just want to make sure that my career is at this certain stage before I actually go ahead and do it. Or I'm so busy right now that I don't think I could do it. I think going through what I went through of having a hard time getting pregnant the third third time, I realized that I, I wish I actually did things a little bit differently. Like this is a little too much information, but I wish when I was younger, I wish that I froze my eggs 
right? Because mm-hmm. knowing what I know now, I'm like, oh, if I had frozen my eggs when I was younger, it would have actually made it a little bit easier now, you know, mm-hmm. to do things. But my my bigger point being, there's kind of never a perfect time. Like, I think that if you're in your career and you're waiting for things to settle down or you're waiting, like, it's kind of never going to happen. And so my advice to people is, if you are feeling like you want to do this, go ahead and start trying now. Because even though it sounds like, you know, right now, like taking, um, being pregnant for nine to 10 months and then taking whatever your maternity leave is. I feel like I've also talked to a lot of people who are nervous about taking their full maternity leave that they feel like, Oh, maybe I'll be at risk of losing my job Mm. at some point. If I take this extra month, like going from the three months to four months or something, let me tell you, that extra month goes so quickly that I know that we all are like super valuable in our jobs and other things. But like ultimately when it comes down to it, you taking an extra month off to one, you know, feel better, like pregnancy and birth and like it takes a lot out of women, but also to make sure that like you're bonding with your child, taking that extra month is super valuable for you and your workplace will be okay. Mm -hmm. Like they will miss you. And I'm sure they're all going to be like, oh gosh, we're all so underwater right now, but it's only a month. And so, um, you know, my advice to everybody is make sure you take the time that you need and like things will be okay. Love that because I took an extra month and Mel's my coworker. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mel. I think we kept things afloat and see things are okay. So yeah. <laughs> fine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, Michelle would love to hear what are some of your self-care practices as someone who is a busy woman, three kids, having to deal with teenagers too. Like I'm just I can't even imagine what that life is like in the future. Sometimes I look at my baby, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're gonna be a teenager at some point. But in any case, what are some of your self-care practices? Yeah. Um, it's definitely something I need to get better at. Someone has asked me, a couple of people have asked me before, like, what's your hobby? I'm like, I've got three kids and a job. <laughs> I don't really have hobbies. Um, I have been trying to get better about getting some exercise throughout the day. So I have a yoga mat that I actually keep right in front of my desk here because it just needs to remind me. Mm. It doesn't have to be me, you know, getting down for an hour and doing just yoga straight for an hour. It's even, I have five minutes in between meetings. Let me do some right now. Mm. I also, you can't see it here, but I have, I bought a little under desk elliptical machine. Oh, (laughs) You know, it helps me as I'm either in meetings or just typing or something, I can have a little bit of movement. And also I do think of skincare very much as self-care for me. I have a bunch of, as you can imagine, like devices and not only just products and stuff, but I have um, the new face, which is like microcurrent, which Mm -hmm. to me, to do that for 10 minutes in the morning feels like self-care to me. Do you feel like that works? I have to ask you, does it work? I do. I do. I, um, you have to keep at it. And Mm. so definitely you can see kind of like a little bit of a lift right after using it. Doesn't last forever though, unless you are, you know, pretty consistent with using it. Mm -hmm. I also have a bunch of like red light LED things, like various things. I have masks and other stuff. And so I'll either do like a mask and lay down in bed for, for 15 minutes or do like my LED mask. And it feels like just that time where you can recalibrate, but also just have a little bit of alone time. And so I definitely think that, especially on a weekend where I can do a little bit longer of like a skincare, I'll do like my own like 
facial treatment or something. It's it's really nice. Those are great self-care practices. Um, I think we all, no matter how busy we are, should be taking time to do things that we love. Um, and when you mentioned that you don't have a hobby, girl, your nails are, <laughs> I feel like that <laughs> is true. an incredible hobby. To the point where, like, when I am sitting in a salon, I will pull up your Instagram page to look for inspo because you have the Aww. best freaking nail game out there. So I'm going to tell you, if you don't know that that's your hobby, that is one of your hobbies (laughs) that are inspiring other people out there. Yeah. When I lived on the East Coast, I I actually used to go into salons and people would come up and go, oh my God, look, I literally brought a picture of your nails here. (laughs) So, so cool. Michelle, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Before we wrap up, we just have a few quick, fun questions for you. So... If you were stranded on an island, what are your top three beauty must-haves? So as a practical mama, I'm not going for anything that's like extraneous. I would go purely practical. So I'm talking sunscreen, Mm -hmm. uh, moisturizer, because it could get really dry and maybe sunny out there, and then lip balm. Mm. So I don't know if you're asking for this, but for for sunscreen, I would bring Elta MD, because it's my favorite one, moisturizer, I would probably bring like a gigantic tub of like CeraVe or something. <laughs> um, and then lip balm, I would bring like the big, because it's again, thinking about if I've only got one, I would bring whatever the biggest size of like that Laneige is. Or maybe I would bring like an Aquaphor or something, because again, you could have like multi uses. <laughs> <laughs> I love these practical answers. That's great. And I'm over here like uh, praising myself, like, oh, I have Laneige too. I'm doing the right thing with my lips. Just to, if Michelle <laughs> signs off on it, I know I chose the right products. Uh, Michelle, what is one thing on your bucket list that you hope to cross off one day? I would really love to go to Korea, which I've never been to Korea, Mm -hmm. and I'd really love to go to Singapore. And so beyond just I think they'd be amazing places to go and visit, also keeping in mind what I said before about food, of how I'm obsessed with food, I think I would eat my way through both of those places and just love everything. Oh, yeah. Yes. Those are good. Let's manifest mm-hmm. that. Let's make that mm-hmm. happen for you. <laughs> Michelle, you mentioned you wrote a book, and I really want to buy your book now. What is your book, and where can we buy your book? <laughs> so you can actually find it on, like, Amazon and Barnes & Noble still. It's called, uh, it's called Fashion Victim. And so keep in mind, at the time, I was super young and idealistic, and it was very much written, like, um, I don't know if you guys remember the book Fast Food Nation. It was sort of mm-hmm. like, you know, the negative side of, um, you know, the fast food industry. It's sort of similar to that in that um, it sheds light on some of the ways that the fashion industry had and can have a negative impact on people, both on their psyche, but also on the environment and other things. It's funny because so, you know, so much time has passed now that I think about what book I would write. I think I probably would do things a little bit differently, but I was truly that book was like my baby for a while where I am very much a perfectionist in everything that I do that it's like I really I spent a lot of time on it. Um, I do actually, one of my big goals now is to write another book at some point. I would love to do that. Mm. As I said before, like I'm super into stories and storytelling. I actually would love to write a screenplay and maybe something a little bit darker. Like I said, I'm, I'm super into like, you know, somewhat of like the dark side of things. So, uh, at some point soon, hopefully you'll see another book from me. Very excited. We cannot wait for Mm -hmm. that to happen. This thriller from Michelle. 
All right, Michelle, where can our listeners connect with you? Yeah. Where can they find you online? So I'm pretty much on all the social platforms, but the ones that I'm on the most are probably Twitter and Instagram, where I'm at Hey Michelle Lee. Awesome. If you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and share this episode with your friends. You can also support us through monthly donations at anchor.fm slash support, or get some merch at asianbossgirl.myshopify.com. If you resonate with today's episode, let us know in the comments of our IG post. If you'd like to put faces to our names, you can find us on YouTube where we share vlogs, an audience Q&A segment called GRBG, and much more. Our handle on both platforms is Asian Boss Girl. If you'd like to send a shout out to a friend, check out our link tree in our link in bio on our Instagram and click on shout outs. And last but not least, thank you to our super talented editor, Michelle, for working all her magic on our episodes, including this one. In addition to our main show that releases every Thursday, we now each host mini shows that release on Tuesdays. Tune into No Dumb Questions with Mel, Living Well with Janet, and Spill the Baby Tea with Helen. Each week, we release a new episode of one of the shows right here on the Asian Boss Girl feed. So be sure to tune in to us on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And with that, we'll catch you all in the next episode. Bye! Bye.